Hi, this is Steve Hargenon, and welcome to the Future of Education. So the first thing I'm going to do is to apologize for my sound. I'm on a laptop computer on a Verizon wireless broadband connection, and for some reason the sound isn't coming through clearly. So I'll do as little talking as possible so that our panelists can do most of that. And we do have tonight a great panel on unschooling with Clark Aldrich, Kate Fritkiss, Monica may or may not be here yet. I don't see her. Uh, and Lisa Nielsen. Welcome, panelists. So the Future of Education is sponsored in part by my employer, Blackboard Collaborate, what used to be Rimbun Eliminate, now combined in a single product. Also my Web 2.0 Labs project, which includes Classroom 2.0, the Global Education Conference, Library 2.0, Teacher 2.0, Aula 2.0, Student 2.0. We're going to be in deep trouble when 3.0 comes through. If you are going to ISTE or you're in the Philadelphia area, we really encourage you to come to one of the events that we have there. EduBloggerCon is a free all-day unconference that's held this Saturday before ISTE. It's a terrific event. It is free. You do not need to be um, registered to uh, at ISTE to attend um, all day Saturday, June 25th. More information at EduBloggerCon.com. If you are going to ISD, please stop by the Bloggers Cafe. It's a great fun area where people get a chance to talk and mingle. And if you would like to present and haven't presented before or have something you'd like to present about that didn't get in this year's program, you can actually present at ISTE by going to ISTEunplugged.com and filling in the wiki there. So we are you have a presentation area in the conference center and we also have uh, we're streaming out all of those sessions. We've announced the dates for our Global Education Conference, November 14th to 18th. This is free, five days of pure fun, globaleducationconference.com. If you didn't attend last year, look it up. It was a blast. We've also um, started a new network, a Teacher 2.0 network. This is different from Classroom 2.0 in that it's not about using the web in the classroom, but it's about using the web for personal and professional growth. It's teacher2020.com. We hope you'll come and help us figure out what's most useful to you there. If you're in the Sacramento area, I'm holding a, an experimental all-day workshop on June 17th on this topic based on some workshops I've done at conferences. So please feel free to go to teacher20.com and sign up there. Coming up on the future of education tomorrow, Cal Newport on his book, How to Be a High School Superstar. There are actually some really neat parallels between that book and what we're going to be talking about tonight. But uh, it is not what it would seem by the title, but a very interesting look at students who have been successful and have gone to the colleges of their choice and have been successful in ways that aren't sort of the primary narrative. Next week, my, one of my favorite books of the year, The Invisible Gorilla, the authors of that book, uh, Troy Hicks on Because Digital Writing Matters. And the week after that, Larry Falasso on his new book, Helping Students Motivate Themselves, and Denise Pope from Stanford on her book, During School. Lots of fun coming up. If you've missed a Future of Education session, they are all recorded. The full Illuminate recordings and the MP3 files are at futureofeducation.com. Last night we heard from Jim Bosco um, on digital media and participatory learning. It was terrific, well worth the listen. Of course, last week, Ken Robinson, super popular, Steve Denning, and radical management. Hopefully there's something there that you find of value in this great conversation about education. If this is your first time in Illuminate, first I'm going to apologize again for my sound, but I'll try and speak as little as possible. You, you do have a variety of ways to participate. There are emoticons at the bottom of your participant window, smiley face, clapping hand, confused look or thumbs down, feel free to use those. The hand with the green up arrow will allow you to ask a question. Um, we'll give you the microphone. You can also put a question in the chat if you're interested in um, not taking the microphone but just want to ask a question. We'll try and do the questions toward the end of the show, but if you have something pressing, feel free to put it in the chat and we'll, we'll try and bring it up if it seems appropriate at the time. We're now going to give you a chance. Oh, one more quick thing. Uh, it's easiest to see this screen if you shift the view. So go up to View Layouts and switch to the Wide Layout. You'll find it's a lot easier to watch the chat in the Wide Layout. So that's View, a new menu, Layouts, and then Wide Layout. 
Okay, we're going to give you a chance now to let us know where you're participating from. Feel free to shout out in the chat as well. But look for the wand with the red star at the end to the left of your map. Click on that and then click on the map. And it will indicate where you're listening from. Looks like we may have New Zealand and China. I got an email from my father in New Jersey that there's a tornado watch. Uh, again, I am traveling and I don't, I'm not at home, but in Lincoln, California, there was a tornado watch. Lots of crazy weather today. Welcome, Monica. Looks like you snuck in there. Um, somebody made you a moderator. I appreciate it. So this promises to be, I think, a really interesting show. I'm going to ask the panelists, I'm going to ask questions and allow the panelists to raise their hands to answer those questions. So panelists, uh, you can choose which questions you would like to address. Um, because of Clark's book, I am going to steer a little bit toward the topics in the book. And we'll see how that goes. But it doesn't mean we need to be constrained by that. Um, if we could, I'd like you to first introduce yourself real briefly and give a sense of how you're associated with the topics of unschooling or homeschooling. And can we start with the order that you're on the screen there and have you go first, Clark? Sure. Hi, my name is Clark Ulbricht. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you, thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, my interest in unschooling is, has, my interest in education has gone back forever. I both grew up going to a lot of superb schools, uh, as well as some superb summer camps where I actually learned a lot more uh, and played a lot of great computer games. So I had a very eclectic, um, or, or, or typically eclectic, uh, educational upbringing. Uh, a lot of my real focus, um, I am a homeschooler myself, or my family homeschools, as I believe it's always a family activity, not an individual activity. Uh, and I've cut my teeth with a lot working with uh, corporations, military, academic, uh, and governments uh, around building educational simulations, which has provided a lot of insight into how bad most media is for capturing knowledge and how much most traditional schools are based on this bad media. Okay, can you go ahead? Okay, you only need to have you turn your microphone on. I don't know if you... Um, can you hear me now? Yes, we can. Okay, sorry about that. Um, I'm Kate Fritkus, and I was unschooled, and I, I feel like I'm still unschooled because I don't think that ever really stops. Um, I'm now 25 years old and a freelance writer, um, also a lay cantor at a synagogue in New Jersey. I blog. Um, I write about education at skipping school, and um, I guess that's about it. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Kate. Go ahead and turn your mic off now. Can you hear me? Hi, Monica. Yes. Um, so I'm Monica, and I'm in Loveland, Colorado, and um, facilitating an innovation lab where kids are creating their own courses for passion, learning for passion, and we've learned a lot, um, especially from these brilliant people here, um, about unschooling. And um, Joey Ito's recent uh, addition to the MIT Media Lab and his interviews about that really speak a lot about what we're trying to do um, is bring unschooling into the, the system as opposed to saying, you know, we should be separate. So that's, that's where we kind of fit in. Hi, my name is Lisa Nielsen. Um, I'm the author of a blog called The Innovative Educator. And the reason I came to unschooling or just this whole topic in general is because I am a frustrated former schooler who um, felt like if I did everything I was told, got the grades I was supposed to get, got my diploma, graduated college, um, then the rest of everything would fall into place. And when I graduated at the top of my class, really quick, skipped grades, I was 19 years old, and I realized that I really hadn't been prepared for much, and I spent most of my time in school being very bored. So I got into education because I wanted 
students to have a different experience that I, than what I had, an experience where it would be more interesting and innovative. And that's where I really started my work in education. And then I moved to the idea that I love um, that Angela Mayers is focusing on passion-driven learning. And then when I found out about unschooling, I found that, and that is thanks to Kate, um, Frickus, who is also on the panel, who's a contributor to my blog, and I really found that unschooling um, has so many of the characteristics that combined everything together that I felt was important in education and should be brought to more students. So that is how I uh, came became interested in this topic. And thank you so much for inviting all of us here. Thanks to all of you for being there. And they should go ahead and turn your mic off just because I don't know how my mic is interacting. So, uh, Clark, I'm going to start with you because um, in this particular case, we, we I did look at your unschooling rules book. And, and I, I'm going to propose that, that uh, what you do in the book is to communicate that um, unschooling is a form of a uh, disruptive innovation or it's an alternate look at schooling that ultimately can help to really inform and or change um, traditional education. So is that a fair assessment of the book? Because it doesn't seem like the book's really about unschooling as much as it's about what we can learn from unschooling that would help change traditional education. Uh, there's a couple of points you bring up there. I think, yes, definitely you're right. Uh, and I think one of the really interesting things about unschooling is its ability to inform traditional education. Uh, the analogy I keep coming back to is the food industry where you have this industrial food industry uh, you know, that produces you know, lean cuisine and stovers and frozen this and microwavable that. And then you have the organic food movement uh, totally outside of the, the industrial food movement uh, that came out of nowhere and recreated created what we think of food and, re and re gave us a lot of our ability to control our own diet. And so the, that's a constant analogy uh, of unschooling is sort of this organic food, whole wheat, locavore, minimally, minimum food miles, whatever. And so, um, yeah, I think, I think it's useful for uh, homeschoolers and unschoolers on two different grounds. One, it helps them free up their mind from trying to get rid of all these sort of bad habits that come from the industrial school system. Uh, and then also in some cases a lot of homeschoolers use it as a, as a weapon or, or as a gift to their in-laws saying, you know, here's why I'm doing what I'm doing, don't bug me. But then the other part of it too is exactly that, which is ultimately a lot of the great innovations that are coming out of unschooling, the truly unique ways of looking at education that could never have come out of the industrial food, uh, industrial school model uh, should ultimately be reworked into it. Uh, I've been involved in, I was a government appointee to the Joint Committee on Educational Technology here in Connecticut. I've done numerous uh, work on school reform. It's all failed. I worked with David T. Kearns when he was doing stuff from Xerox uh, with Gerstner at IBM. Uh, you know, every single major education reform has failed. And so for me, uh, the unschooling movement will reform school because it doesn't actually require schools to reform. So I view it as, as one more and I think probably the best attempt I've ever seen to introduce new ideas into this whole area of education. So I will say that I love the food uh, analogy. It really got me thinking, especially because processed uh, packaged food tends to be cheaper, it's more widely distributed, it's more standardized, but it has fewer vitamins and it's less nutritious and it was very easy for me to kind of uh, spend some time thinking about that. Is this a disruptive innovation, homeschooling and unschooling, in the way that Clayton Christensen would describe it, starting on the fringe with underserved populations and ultimately, uh, ultimately sort of guaranteed to shift the uh, traditional practice? Absolutely. Schools will change. Schools are already feeling the impact of this. We're already seeing it in the headlines. Uh, this unschooling movement will totally disrupt education as we know it today. Okay, so let's kind of broaden this to the panel. Um, can we get a definition from someone of what unschooling is and how it compares to homeschooling? I'll, I'll go ahead and, oh, it looks like Kate was going to take it, but, um, and Kate, you can take over from here. I was going to say um, that Kate actually, as I mentioned earlier, was the person who introduced me to this whole idea 
And she wanted to connect with me because she knew I had a popular blog about education and thought that it would be a good idea for us to um, maybe learn from each other. And I said to her, I, I'm not a good person for you because my experience is in education and innovation and I've heard of homeschooling but I have no idea what unschooling is and, um, and I'm really busy. I don't have much time to find out more about it. Um, and she was persistent, thank goodness. And what I've learned from her is homeschooling is basically in many cases, doing school at home. So it's not all that different from regular school. And also, in many cases, I mean, these could all always look very different. But they might uh, take the regular standardized test and even use uh, the curriculum, like the standard curriculum. Unschooling is more the idea that you learn from life and that uh, you learn from your passions and that you take a lot more cues from the individual than you do in a traditional school environment where the cues are from this is the curriculum and this is what everybody is doing and this is when and we're all grouped by data manufacturer or age. Um, so those are some of the differences and then uh, I'd love for Kate to take the microphone and fill in what I missed. Um, I think you said it really, really well, Lisa. I, I was going to use exactly those words, learning from life. Although I would say that um, I don't think that homeschooling, when I think of homeschooling, I don't necessarily imagine um, a bunch of kids sitting behind desks in their living room with a chalkboard in front of them. I think homeschooling is incredibly diverse. And unschooling can be very diverse, too. So it's actually hard to um, sort of pin either of these concepts down with a single definition. And unschoolers struggle to define unschooling all the time. Um, but certainly it's true, and at least it's been true for my family, that um, one of the things that unschooling really emphasizes is um, the individual, the child, being able to follow his or her interests. Um, sort of learning from learning in a way, too, um, if that makes sense. So I'm curious, uh, Kate, for you, are the general perceptions of homeschooling or unschooling accurate, and where are they accurate and where aren't they? Um, well, I mean, that's sort of a difficult question. I mean, growing up unschooled, you know, I got approached all the time by people who wanted to know if I could socialize. Um, I think that's a very common perception of homeschoolers slash unschoolers is that we, um, we're locked up in a room somewhere. We can't talk to people. Um, obviously, blatantly untrue. Um, I don't, I don't know if that's exactly what you're asking because I feel like that's sort of an old stereotype, although I think it's still pretty pervasive. Um, one of the things that's definitely true I've noticed um, about unschoolers is that we are interacting a lot um, because we are, you know, probably more likely than kids who are in school all day to go out into the community and find mentors. and. Um, sort of learn from a lot of people um, in a lot of different contexts. So I'm interested, thank you for that, Kate. Um, I'm interested in uh, the comment that was just made about uh, Lisa saying that Summerhill and Sudbury would be considered unschooling schools. Um, what schools do come closest to having this kind of a philosophy, the philosophy of the homeschoolers or the unschoolers, and how successful are they, in your opinions? I'd love to jump in on that. Um, and then I see there's a couple other people who might be interested in that as well. And I think what I've learned and as I've been studying this over the past year is the schools that are following the unschooling model are also often known as democracy schools or free schools. The thing is, the issue is that they're not, they can't be publicly funded because they don't meet the standardized test criteria because that goes against um, the whole idea of free schools or democracy schools. And my hope and dream is to figure out a way that these alternative schools can be publicly funded and that people can vote with their feet as to what schools they want to go to and also, these schools do, and I'm veering off just a second, but just to make this point, these schools do teacher evaluations in a very different way than we do them currently. And it's not necessarily every free school or every democracy school that does this, 
but many of them, the teacher evaluations are the staff and the students do the teacher evaluations. It's not about standardized tests, but it's about how effective those people in the school feel that you are. And that's how they're rated, and the parents judge by sending their kids to school there. So my hope is that some people will have insights into how these sort of schools can become public. And there's some other people. So I'm going to get off the microphone. Go ahead, Carl. Oh, sorry, me. Okay, great. Um, what's been interesting is with the advent of the uh, homeschooling laws uh, that have been passed over the last, say, decade or so, um, there's been a lot of really hybrid models coming out there when there's no, when there's institutions that resemble more like community centers that are popping up where you know kids might attend one day or two days or three days a, a, a week as opposed to five days, uh, where there are classes that you can sort of walk into or walk out of. Um, and so you're sort of getting these, these community, uh, community center-centric uh, activities that are providing access to other classes, access to universities in some cases, access to professors, access to, to libraries, and, and, and help uh, away from parents, which is sometimes a good idea. Um, but in a, you know, in a completely, uh, completely novel way. So I think the cool thing is that we're seeing a lot of, again, with the passage of all the homeschooling laws, uh, where parents officially are homeschooling, and then once that happens, that frees them up to explore a lot of these other types of models that are much more uh, different from traditional schools. So Monica, you were going to take the mic. I kind of yeah. have a question for you. Sure. Go ahead, and then I'm going to ask a follow-up. I was going to say, just from our experience, um, the kids in the lab uh, wrote a four-year plan of disruption um, in order to change our community into the whole the whole town is the school, kind of like a university campus. And the high schools become resource centers as opposed to high schools. And in experimenting this first year, what we've really found is um, just the whole idea that you said, Clark, I called you Carl earlier, sorry, about the community centers and that really the reason it's hard to do is because if you're saying you're going to have a school that's an unschool, that's kind of a misnomer and we we really don't notice so much so much that we're we're holding on to old things and trying to fit the unschool into that. And what Kate said about it's it's just real life and you can't define it because it's just you you live your life and learning is natural. And so facilitating that for a student. Um, so what we're trying to do is um, we're, we're a connected adjacency. Saul Kaplan um, penned that term. Um, uh, Business Innovation Factory in Providence, Rhode Island is doing this with Babson College to where we're both in and out of the system so that, you know, we don't diminish either one um, so that kids are free to do this um, when they're working in the lab. But all the benefits from that go back into the school system so that people are feeling like, oh, I can do that. So that the lab would remain small, but the innovation would start welling up in the people and so that by the end of year four, it's, um, you're just designing your own school with the resources that are available in town. So Monica, given your kind of unique position here in, in doing that in, within the sort of traditional arena but um, extended to these new ideas, I'm, I'm really curious about two things. One of which, is it realistic, as Clark says in the book, for every child to find a calling to change the world? Is that realistic? And then number two is, if it is realistic, how painful is it for adults to change their perceptions of that? Um, I absolutely feel like it's realistic. I think that um, any change changes the world. And so um, it might be our perception of what a change needs to be, but um, I feel like uh, we all have a genius inside of us. and. Um, Stephen Pressfield wrote uh, The War of Art and just is, is really good about explaining that, that we just need to bring that out. Um, the, the hardest thing for adults um, is, well, our, our, what we're working with is Notice Dream Connect Do. That's just what we're using for a curriculum. It's a process of learning. And we feel like the kids are expert connectors. We, we may not get how they connect and, and what the purpose is, but if community is the curriculum and that's collaboration is key, they're really experts at that connecting. Um, for the dream part, we feel like 
the adults are managing the dream part at this point, and no one's you know everybody wants the best for the kids, but we're holding a big kibosh on the dreaming part. Um, whether or not we feel like we are, the kids perceive that, and so even though they come up with amazing dreams and they they want to do these things, um, they don't feel like they have permission from us. And so the hardest part is um, seeing kids like this semester. A lot of people, adults, thought, what the heck are you doing, you know, in a lab? Well, what we're calling those four words is detox. And it's just, it takes a while when you've grown up in the system to just um, find, you know, what you want to do. And what the kids ended up saying at the end of the year, it wasn't really finding your passion, it was making yourself. And it comes about by following your fancy. And um, Kate's um, blog, which, by the way, Lisa um, led me to, so I'm just grateful for all of you guys. Um, if you read that, you, you, you see that she's following her fancy, and that's how she's becoming herself. So the hardest just, part is, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to chime in. Is that okay? Um, when you were saying, okay, thank you. Um, Monica, when you were talking about, um, you know, how it's possible for everybody to, you know, to, to learn what they want and to follow their dreams. I, I think that that's absolutely true. And one of the things that's sort of disconcerting about being at the stage of life that I'm in now, being 25 and seeing how the, my peers are, are out of college now and, um, you know, they're, they're really struggling, especially with the recession. You know, people can't find jobs, but people are also just trying to find themselves in the midst of also trying to find a job and frantically trying to put their lives together or make something of themselves. And there's sort of this emphasis on trying to now sort of desperately piece yourself together and figure out who you are. And that's an idea that I, is, is a little bit foreign to me as an unschooler because I feel like, and I don't want to sound like arrogant here, but I feel like something that's always been emphasized in my life is figuring out who I am as I go because that's how learning works. So the idea that children are sort of forced to learn stuff that impedes them from discovering what it is that they're interested in is a strange idea to me. And it's a very unfortunate idea and an unfortunate reality. And I, it, it makes me a little bit sad to, to look around and see a world full of people who really, really want very much to try to figure out what it is that they're interested in, what they're passionate about, and, and find a way to pursue that. But, but there have been so many sort of stumbling blocks placed in the way all along. So Clark, you had raised your hand. I was going to ask you a question next, so why don't we have you go ahead. Um, yeah, the, the first unschooling rules is that notion of learn to be, learn to do, learn to know. And schools typically focus on the learn to know part and not at all on the learn to be or learn to do part. And that's just, a, again, a, a fluke of media or traditional media in general is it's focusing on learning to know, not learning to be or learning to do. So that's just kind of you know, a huge problem with, with most schools. Uh, one more quick thought, which is the notion of, of leadership is a really interesting one. There's different types of leadership. Let's break it down into two categories. There's directive leadership and let's just call it collaborative leadership. In directive leadership, I tell you what to do and you do it and I you know, reward you or not for how well you follow my orders uh, versus collaborative. Uh, which is, you know, the leader says, how can I help you accomplish what, what it is that you want to do and maybe some guidance as well. Directive leadership is a fairly toxic form. It only works in very short doses and whatever positive behavior it gets in the short term often doesn't stick in the long term. So it's very predictable if you study leadership theory that the directive approach to teaching can't work because it, it actually creates uh, negative long-term behavior in areas where, you, where you're trying to emphasize. So just looking at a few different things, uh, you can just sort of see how flawed the school model has ended up being. Lisa, I'm going to follow up with that if it's okay. Keep your hand up and we'll, we'll come back to you. So Clark, I was really intrigued by that comment and it's in the book as well. Uh, and we've talked a lot here on the show about sort of the dual narratives that exist um, in so many areas of our lives. And in education, it would be you know, structure versus freedom or memorization and engagement. Um, and uh, you use the, the thesis, antithesis, synthesis model. Um, but, but it seems as though there's value to both, that uh, when we swing all the way to one direction, you know, we often we often lose perspective, and so clearly the short-term sort of controlling model 
of schools feels like it's very much in one corner. How far do we go to balance, or or should there be a balance, or, or what, you know, so how do you respond to this idea of balancing the kind of the two narratives that drive us? That's a great question. And again, the, the point of the Hegelian model of the thesis, antithesis, antithesis, and synthesis ultimately is towards that 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 complexity, which is there are schools, which is the thesis, there is unschooling, which is the antithesis or antithesis, and then ultimately the two have to come together to be to be the synthesis. So there's an inherent merger of the two. I think a much more fun analogy is that of a swimming pool, uh, which is something I bring up in unschooling rules, uh, where you sort of look at the way that kids approach swimming. First of all, it's this big scary body of water. It's terrifying. You don't want to go near it. You're going to drown if you, you know, if you do the wrong thing. So, so kids are scared of it. Then they get in and they start splashing around. They have fun. They play. Uh, and in that play, they learn a tremendous amount of skills, holding their breath, um, moving water. Uh, and that's a very important part of a learning process. Then ultimately, they evolve beyond that. They evolve to rigor. Uh, and often with the help of a coach, then they learn very specific things, whether it's you know <laughs> repairing spacecraft in zero-g environment, like you might see in the Navy uh, or the Air Force, or uh, obviously more commonly learning specific strokes uh, or, or learning lifeguard skills. So there is this transition between them, the exposure, the playing around to get comfortable, and then the tightening up and, and actually really working towards very, very specific goals. I think all three are necessary. Uh, in, in, in the healthy learning process. Now, we might be exposed to 100 things. Of those 100 things, you might play around with 20 or 30 of them and then apply rigor to five or six of them, and that's fine. So there's a, a bit of a winnowing process as well. So I, I don't see it as black and white at all. I see it as increasingly looking at, at scales of things, as you say. So Lisa, thanks for being patient. Um, if you're still interested, please go ahead. Sure. Um, and it's, it was just related to a question in the chat, so I'm moving in a different direction, if that's okay. Um, and if not, we can just go back to, to where we were. Um, but the question was, can students do unschooling if their parents are not on board? So I wanted to try to take that question, because I have um, one answer to the question. And, and I'd love to hear Kate's take on that, as well as Clark's take as uh, also, um, but I recently wrote a team guide for opting out of high school, and one of the things that's in the guide is how you can convince your parents that this is a good plan for you. And I think that the way that students can do this or children can do this is I think that the parents do need to be on board and the child needs to explain to the parents why this makes sense. And that guide was really created to enable children to explain that to parents. Now my feeling is you would have to at least be a teenager to really get a sense of this, although that, that quite possibly is not correct. Um, so what I think is that yes, you can do it without your parents on board, but you or start it, but then you need to bring them on board. And in the guide, we have an example of a presentation that a teenager who wanted to opt out of school and really unschool um, presented to her parents to convince them that this was the best choice for them. And I'd love to hear other people's thoughts on that to answer that question as well. Um, sure. Uh, I think that, well, first of all, I think that it's really important for the parents to be on board. Um, but I think that one of the misperceptions about homeschooling and unschooling, and maybe more so unschooling, is that uh, the parent has to be a teacher. And a lot of people have asked me, so is your mother certified as a, as a teacher? Did she teach public school? And she's not certified and she didn't teach public school or any type of school. Um, I think that unschooling parents tend to serve more as facilitators, if that's an appropriate word, um, rather than as, as instructors. Um, and um, so I think that, and I think that you're right, that I think this situation can work much more easily if the, if the student is a teenager. When you're a small child, being left alone to your own devices at, at three or four, I don't think that that makes very much sense. But when you're 14 and you know that you're interested in, um, you know, in, in, in fashion design and you want to set up a studio and make your own clothes, um, you don't really need someone standing over you telling you exactly how to do that. Though, of course, like I mentioned before, I think that uh, finding mentors in the community is um, likely to happen and very valuable. 
So Clark has 54 chapters in the book that are things that uh, he feels take place in unschooling that uh, are really valuable and we should be looking at for their short chapters. We should be looking at for traditional schooling. Um, I know this isn't fair, but Clark, would you pick one or two sort of favorite ones and then we'll go around the panel and ask uh, the panelists as well if there are specific things that they feel are really core elements of homeschooling or unschooling that would um, make a huge difference in traditional schools? I think a big one is classrooms stink. I mean, you know, I don't know how else you want to say it, but the, the notion of gathering kids together by age having a, a lecture at the front of the, of the room, uh, having kids lined up by desk. It's just, it's just a terrible model. I mean, it's, it's, it's a horrific model. It's deadening. It, it's, I mean, it's, it's bad for so many reasons. And almost, you know, you can get into the more subtle stuff, the more philosophical stuff. But, you know, at some point, classrooms stink and tests don't work. So you have this entire school model that's based on a fundamentally wrong premise. And you can say, well, gosh, how can we get, you know, three-year-olds to sit in class more? Or how can we, you know, extend the school, you know, extend the, 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 the school day to make it more effective so kids learn more? You know, classrooms stink. And so as long as you're sort of tied to a classroom model, uh, you're not going to do very well. And that's, you know, I mean, it's sort of the almost the most fundamental of all. I know it's just not fair to ask you to do one or two because I pulled out about 25 where I was, you know, really marking the pages. Uh, Kate, what about you? Are, are there one or two things that you would say were really significant about your schooling experience that you haven't mentioned so far that, that we should be thinking about for traditional school? Um, I'm sure there are a million things, um, but one that jumps to mind is being able to fail. I think that um, being able to fail and move on without creating some sort of damaging permanent record is so crucial to um, being able to learn confidently and being able to have self-confidence is maybe one of the most important things in the world because at that point you can pursue anything. Um, and I think that one of the things that's so, so um, detrimental about this traditional school model is that kids are measured all the time. They're tested all the time. And you know, no matter how, how, you, how you cut it, if, you, if a number is assigned to you at the end of the day, you know if that number is high or low or in the middle, and it says something really important about you. Um, and if your number is low, um, you might begin to think, and actually you probably will begin to think, that um, maybe you're just supposed to be a low number. Um, and I think that that can be I think it's very, a very dangerous model, actually. Um, so um, I feel really fortunate that I've had the, the ability to be able to fail and fail again and fail again and then figure out how it works. I think that that's something that um, would greatly improve uh, traditional education, but I don't know how really that can be integrated into the system. Right. Uh, well, I'm going to just do a little tease here based on, on what you just said, Kate, because there are several of Clark's chapters that relate to sort of adults getting out of the way, whether it's um, free time or, uh, you know, there are a variety of issues. And I'm, as we kind of go through this, I'm curious as to if anybody's seen a way in traditional schools that, that help the adults to get out of the way. So, Lisa, you look anxious to go next, so let's have you go next. Um. It, yeah, so just to answer the question of some unschooling practices I'd love to see in school is more choice. And uh, I was disappointed recently when I was looking at what the regents were considering um, to make schools, high schools, more effective in the future. And it really boiled down to requiring more years of math and science and subjects that they deem important and more tests and harder tests and less choice for students. So I think the, the biggest thing is choice and not everyone has to take everything nor do they have to be good at everything. And I say um, often when I speak and write that I was forced to take a lot of uh, more difficult math classes from say algebra and geometry and so on from that. And though I was forced to take them, I never learned those subjects. And I succeeded quite well in life. And I just don't think mathematically. And I think that forcing certain subjects on people who just don't have that aptitude and it's almost torturous um, is not the best way to get people to love school or love learning and succeed. 
that would be my big thing is more choice. Monica, you're and next. I, I would totally agree with that. Um, Jane McGonigal wrote a book called Reality is Broken, and she says um, the most enticing thing to a game is that it's voluntary, and that's what makes it a really good game. And I would say that the kids that we're not seeing, we're scared if we, if we let them choose, they're going to choose bad or they're going to be lazy. Well, the kids that have shown us that, again, we're, we're trying to say it's unschooling or it's per choice or it's per interest, but it's within these boundaries that we've set. So um, we're not going to see that right off or we're not going to see it right away. Um, but from the, the years' experience that we've had and a, a bunch of other people, I'm sure, as well, if you deliberately don't teach and you're just alongside them and you daily let them know that you're trusting whatever they do and trusting learning, um, they will do amazing things. Um, it's just going to take some of them longer than others. So I'm interested for those who are in the audience, if you feel free to put in the chat your feelings about this, the, the pieces of homeschooling and unschooling that really should be informing traditional schooling. Um, you know, there were a dozen, two dozen uh, of my favorites that didn't get in that short list. So I'm just going to, again, recommend the book and say there's just so much in here that is, is provides for sort of deep thinking about what the, you know, what we're seeing happening in homeschooling and unschooling and why it makes sense. So Clark, I want to come, before we go to Q&A, I want to come back to sort of the cognitive piece. And uh, if, if we sort of depend on narratives to make cultural shifts, and we're thinking about um, this shift of education or learning and how we think about learning, what are the, uh, what are the cognitive um, hurdles that we face with adults? And where are you seeing people successfully tell this story in a way that does produce change? One of the hardest things is a lot of parents really want their children's school experiences to be very similar to their own. Uh, I've been very surprised at how many parents really almost want to relive school and, and, and understand school through their own lens. And that's very, very hard. And I, I, I see that uh, an enduring problem and one that won't, again, uh, one that will hold back a lot of change for, for generations. So um, that's a pretty big problem. I, I think the, the, the narratives, though, is that the world is changing so fast. I mean, content has gone from the most important thing a school can deliver to the least important through the internet. Kids themselves are changing so fast that a traditional classroom might as well be taught in French. Uh, it's, just, it's just bizarre for most kids to, to spend time in a, in a classroom when they go home and they play with their iPads, they go home, they, they uh, you know, go on their PS3 networks, not really the last month, but in general, uh, go on the PS3 networks and, you know, compete with friends and stuff. So um, you have a situation where the fundamental reason for existence of schools is, is going away uh, in terms of delivering content and providing access to communities and opportunities. Uh, likewise, the, um, the uh, children themselves are just changing so fast. But the, the third one is just the cost. I mean, the, the cost of any service-based organization has outstripped inflation for the last 30 years. Uh, it's, just, it's a brutal reality to that. Uh, we can't afford the schools that we think we want, let alone the fact that schools that we think we want, we don't want. Uh, we're already seeing that with colleges, and we're seeing a pretty robust anti-college revolution going on right now with the cost of college being around $200,000. So, uh, the system is breaking all over, uh, and I think despite the uh, the desire of nostalgia and having a school system be similar to what we had uh, as uh, parents, uh, I think the, the cracks are just growing so fast uh, that there's going to have to be new alternatives. So the other thing, sorry, the, la the, ahead, the sorry. last thing, oh, oh, sorry, I just want to say one last thing. The, mo the most important thing to me, as I said before, is um, unschooling and homeschooling is not like a Harvard professor saying, here's a theoretical model for education that I think we should all do. I think the most important thing about homeschooling and unschooling is it's happening. A million students are doing this today. So it's not theoretical. It's not this thing, uh, you know, school reformers are so used to failing. It's like, oh, of course I have this great idea, and of course it's going to fail. The thing about unschooling is that it's happening today, and it's happening, and it's growing really quickly. So it's not, it's gone from being this theoretical thing that probably won't happen to this very, very real thing that's happening and growing right now. And so it's, it's less a matter of saying, should we nurture this along, or should we judge this, or should we evaluate it, where the truth is it's happening whether we want it to or not.
So let's move to Q&A. Um, if you have a question that was in the chat, uh, there's been so much chat, I apologize. I probably missed it, but feel free to post it again. Or use the uh, hand with the green up arrow to raise your hand to ask a question. And it looks like Kate has a comment before we shift there. Go ahead, Kate. Well, actually, I think this is an attempt to answer your question um, by Maria. She uh, asks, how do you explain the depth of unschooling as a lifestyle difference for the whole family, not just something you do on schedule of kids? And I don't know how well I'm able to answer this question. I'm not an expert by any means, but um, speaking from personal experience, actually, um, I was reminded of something like this question earlier in the conversation when Lisa was talking about um, the free school movement. And Lisa and I had gone to visit the Manhattan Free School, um, which is a really interesting institution. And um, I was totally fascinated by what was going on. And the question, how is this free school environment different um, than unschooling, is something that I was thinking about. And one of the really um, critical differences I, I, I noticed was just that you know, when you're in a free school, you're still in a school building, right? You're not with your family. And for me, um, being unschooled was very much about being with my family, for better and for worse. I mean, some days they drove me crazy. But um, my relationship with my, with my siblings, my two younger brothers, and my parents um, is, has very much been formed, of course, by my experience as an unschooler, and I am so thankful for that. Um, I'm, I have a, a really, really um, deep relationship with my brothers that I cherish very much, and I, I, I think that that arises directly from um, our experiences growing up as unschoolers together. Um, I don't think you can be unschooled really um, without it changing your relationship with your family. Um, maybe that's stating the obvious. And the other thing is that, um, you know, I think that there's sort of an effort these days to say, well, homeschoolers and unschoolers are just like everyone else. You know, we do things just as well as everyone else. We get into college just like everyone else. We win the spelling bee all the time. Look, see, you know, maybe that doesn't look so normal. But look, we can do the things that you guys can do, and we can even do them better. Um, but the truth is, we are different. We're, we are weird. We're different. We're not the same as everybody else. Um, we have been deeply impacted by our experiences, and we're living a very different life, even though, of course, it's in the world like everyone else, and sometimes I think, maybe this is my prejudice, more so in the world than a lot of people. Um, but we are different, and I think that's really, really awesome. Thanks, Kate. Um, Clark, a question came up from Kevin in the chat about families and their capabilities to do this. And you addressed in this in the book. There, there, I think the way you sort of described it is this sort of self-fulfilling lack of confidence in parents to be able to do things with their kids. But, but are there parents who, who aren't capable of doing this? And how do, how do you thoughtfully address that? A couple of thoughts there. There has to be a presumption that the parents care most about the children. Um, and that sounds obvious, but the number of, of teachers who bring up the worst parents as sort of proof for their existence is, is pretty scary. And, and the more you look for it, the more you actually see it, where you have a real anti-parent meme going out in most schools where they say, oh, God, the parent, let me tell you about this. This one was a drug addict. This one was a workaholic. This one was whatever. And, and, and you really start seeing how much culturally schools almost are in the business of, of putting down parents uh, as being incapable of, of, of being good decision makers. So I have to start off with a little, um, you know, it's so common that it almost becomes accepted that, that parents are, or don't care as much and are incapable of, of doing a lot of fundamentally basic things to, to uh, be safeguarding their or supporting their, their children's development, which of course I think is totally wrong most of the case. There's going to be a few. I mean, there's a few bad parents, and and uh, you know those bad parents that you know the kids have a tough time of it when they're in traditional schools, and they have bad parents, and 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 uh, you know the, the kids have a tough time with it when if they homeschool. So I, I think the presumption has to be from a society perspective that parents care the most, although sometimes they do need some help, and and uh, whatever help mechanisms are there, you know, are certainly going to be be enjoyed. Um, like with anything, I mean, it's like saying how do you assume someone, you know, how do you assume someone's not a criminal? How do you assume someone's not a bank robber? Well, you know, if you see them putting a mask on their head and walking into a bank with a gun and starting shooting people and asking for money, well, then you can sort of assume maybe, maybe they are a bank robber. But, um, you know, again, we have to live with the presumption of innocence and we have to live with the presumption of stewardship on the, on the point of the parents and then tackle some of the, um, you know, some of the unfortunate exceptions in both cases on a case-by-case -case basis. Thanks, Kate. 
Does anybody else want to address that? Or if you've seen another question in the chat, please feel free to now just to go ahead and answer. If you put a question in the chat that I've missed, uh, again, I apologize. Raise your hand or put it in the chat again, and I'll try to make sure it gets asked. When we started um, looking into all of this and, and asking how people would redefine school, every answer was different. In fact, not just different, but complete opposite. So what we came up with is nothing is for everyone. And um, so the way we're fitting this whole unschooling thing back into the system is um, we really don't think education needs to change that much. We just need to change who's together in a room for choice. And so um, the way to get through that madness and that chaos um, in studying homelessness, um, New York is um, coming up with this um, Declaration of Interdependence Clause where they're saying a kid at 14 could sign off as independent, but instead we'd rather they signed off as in interdependent where at least there's one adult. So we're thinking that public ed now could be providing that, facilitating that each kid is paired not just for kindness like big brother, big sister, but for passion to someone in the community. So an 80-year-old that normally spends all day watching TV is now paired with a 12-year-old that they have the same dreams and they can't wait to get up and get going on, the, on whatever the next day. Um, I'll, take, I'll take one of the questions that was a little earlier. Um, and it was, do unschooling students have criteria that they have to meet each day to prove that they're learning? And how do you know if they're actually learning? And um, I don't know if I'm completely answering the question, but a couple things came to mind. And one is something that I write about in frustration often, which is I, I mentor a particular student named Armin, who I write about in my blog. And he is amazing um, at photography. And also, he's a, a videographer. And he is at a vocational high school. And he has so many talents. And his school has never taught him how to um, do a resume, a cover letter, showcase his work, collect his work in any way. He has no evidence of learning. And this isn't only a problem in high school. I write about also in my blog, in college, there are students who are graduating college without any sort of evidence of their learning beyond a transcript, which really isn't that exciting. But one of the things, or you know, it's not that great of a selling tool even for an employer. One of the things I've noticed, because I did study um, dozens and dozens, but probably closer to maybe over 100 unschoolers and grown unschoolers, they have real, real life evidence of learning. And so one that comes to mind is a nine-year-old who decided to start a soap making business. And the soaps are amazing. Like the watermelon soap is in the shape of a watermelon and smells like watermelon. And she learned how to start a business. She's nine years old. She has a website. Um, and she is a, a businesswoman at nine. This sort of thing is not unusual. So what you see, the evidence of learning for the unschoolers I've read about and talked to and connected with is real life work. They also are doing things in the community. And they start to build that and develop a real life uh, reputation. And so I think that's the difference between the evidence of learning from unschoolers versus in school. In school, it's a transcript. But when you unschool, you have real life experience and evidence that you can demonstrate your learning through. Carol? And I'm sure Kate and the rest can add to that, and Clark. Carol wants to know if anybody has seen school districts that successfully include unschoolers in their school community. Well, we have, oh, go ahead, Lisa. OK, I was just going to, a very brief answer is that I did a little research into this. Uh, each state has a different law as to whether or not they must accept they don't call it unschoolers, they call it um, like homeschool or home education students into their community. And it varies from state to state. And there is a site um, that someone else could probably think of before I do. Uh, I think it's like homeschool education law or something like that. Um, it's easy to Google. But you look at that site, and some states do not have to do anything, and other states do. So that's the first 
place to look, and then I'll turn it back over to Monica. I think that's why this is a disruption and a revolution, because all everything we keep talking about is getting permission out of the way. I see adults as our goal is to get permissions for kids, because all of this is natural. I mean, it just happens naturally. The question about what percentage of kids would choose it, well, if it was in an unoppressed situation, it's natural and everyone would choose it. Realistically, um, not enough people feel brave. So I'd say, like um, Clark said, 10 to 20 percent probably. Um, but we're getting the most support in the lab and learning a lot um, from some unschooling parents that um, their kids are in there and doing amazing things, and, and they're really guiding a lot of what we're doing. So we, we do have a space for unschoolers. Clark, feel free to go ahead. Yeah, the, the, I, I put 20% in as, as sort of a random number, and, and I, I don't think it's an especially intelligent one. Um, but I do believe as there are more diverse options, the notion of sort of a pure unschooling approach you know, it will become something that would be very hard to define. I mean, if, if I am attending, you know, six different classes, quote unquote, and, you know, some of them are college or PhD level at a, at a university online, and some of them are, you know, going to a local museum and, and helping curate some, some exhibit or something, you know, is that unschooling? So I think from a definition perspective, um, I think the more options that are available, I think the, the healthier the entire ecosystem will be, and that and that's the real goal. You know, what the concept of an unschooler will mean, you know, 20 years ago in some kind of perfect uh, uh, educational ecosystem, I think will be will be even harder to define than it is now. So um, I, I don't mean that 20% to be anything overly thought out. Um, but again, I think the more options we have, the more people will naturally gravitate almost away from, you know, what we now think of as unschooling towards these various ad hoc programs that can deepen their own uh, their own expertise and passion. So Judy in the audience uh, asked if you could answer a question. Judy, I've actually given you the microphone. You would turn it on by clicking at the lower left of your screen. If you're brave enough, we'd love to hear from you. And Judy, we can hear you turn your mic on, but we're not actually hearing you. So unfortunately, your mic may not be configured um, go ahead and if you're if you're comfortable you can go up to tools, audio and run the audio setup wizard. And otherwise feel free to, to put an answer in the chat. Uh, Ke Kevin Kevin again is concerned about the whether or not this is realistic. And um, we've got uh, just about a minute left here. Would anybody else like to answer this question of um, Kevin says, tell me this will work in an urban area like Chicago or Detroit. Um, I know my area, Boston, has great stories at private high schools, but terrible results from the ordinary kid from the ordinary family. Any kind of final words about this particular barrier to believing that this is, could work? Uh, a couple of thoughts. I mean, some of the best people have come from the best parents in the poorest districts. Um, the woman who's now in charge of uh, Xerox Corporation, Ur Ursula Burns, um, you know, had a, came from not the best you know neighborhood, and she just had a parent who 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 cared immensely. So um, I think there's 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 terrific um, caring. I think the better way of thinking about it, or one one another way of thinking about it, is, is um, we need new ideas. I mean, a lot of people who are sort of worried about protecting public schools say, oh, you know, this is going to take money out of schools. This is going to take sort of the best kids out of the schools. Isn't that bad? And my response is, no, it's good because ultimately it's going to return good ideas and new ideas. And those new ideas are what all schools need. I think it's also erroneous to, you know, it's very, very typical for underfunded schools to look up and admire and envy the problems and the structures that well-off schools have. And I think that's too bad because, um, you know, in a lot of cases, the, uh, the what, what we think of as the best schools really aren't the best schools and really aren't very good schools. And so I, I think that the role model of these sort of well-funded suburban schools uh, is, is, has its own massive problems. So my hope is that through a diversity, including unschooling, a lot of new ideas get reinterjected back into the public school system, and that ultimately helps uh, all schools, including urban schools. Okay, so we have reached the top of the hour. I'm clapping here and using the, clap, the clapping hand at the bottom of the participant window to thank our panelists for coming on tonight. This was fascinating. Uh, Clark's book is on schooling rules. 
Uh, it's a quick read and very, very interesting. Uh, our panelists' um, links to their blogs or their work are in my blog post. If, um, if you go to futureofeducation.com and click through to the event. This has been a delightful evening. There are a lot of subjects we didn't touch, including college, uh, but clearly we're going to need to do this again. Um, thanks, panelists, so much for coming on tonight, and thanks, audience, for being here. Please do feel free to contact uh, the panelists uh, directly. They all have in their links to have ways of getting a hold of them, um, and we will look to do this again. So thanks everyone, and thanks for putting up with my bad audio. The, um, in order for the recording to process, we do have to have you exit the room. You can do so by clicking at the, on the X at the top right corner of your screen and going to file and exit, um, and I'll get this recording posted tonight. Uh, that includes the chat log as well, if you watch the full eliminate recording, um, so you can save that chat or look at it during the recording. Take care. Good night.